Tonight we are going to uh, jump into what some people consider the most difficult chapter of the book of Revelation. I don't think so, but I mention that because you'll find many commentators that uh, have that particular point of view. And I do believe that Revelation chapter 12 is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. One of the reasons it's so widely misunderstood is due to an incorrect identification of the players, of the principal player, and all that accrues from this. And that accrues in part because of church history. And tragically, in the early centuries of the history of the church, uh, the church became very anti-Semitic. Also, the theology of the early church, I'm talking about the 3rd, 4th century, started more and more to allegorize the scriptures. The whole idea, the literal view of the early centuries was that Jesus Christ was going to return and take over the world and straighten it out and uh, depose the incompetent uh, human rulers and set up God's kingdom. And uh, that was not a popular point of view, especially after the conversion of Constantine and the, and the Christianity being made the state religion of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, leaning on the writings of Oregon, Augustine and others started to allegorize the scripture. Well, Jesus wasn't going to come back literally. He's going to rule in men's hearts and so forth. The point is, is that's what's, that started a tradition within the church that pervades most denominations, certainly the Catholic Church, but also many of the Protestant denominations, which tend not to look uh, or focus on a literal return of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the, one of the aspects of this... Um, separation, if you will, between the church and Israel, the anti-Semitism of the church, if you will, was tragic for Israel because it laid, of course, the foundations for the Holocaust and, and, in fact, centuries of abuse through the Crusades and the rest. But it's also tragic for the church because we also lost our Old Testament roots. Uh, Most people uh, who have studied their Bible still don't really understand the Old Testament message, don't really understand the role of Israel in the future. If someone is confused on those subjects, the chapter 12 of Revelation ends up being very confused. So I want to state, state right up front, one of the main things that chapter 12 will lay in front of us is the enigma of Israel as an element in God's plan. And that's going to hit us right uh, between the eyes. Without understanding God's role in Israel, you will not understand Revelation chapter 12. Now, by the way, I think I pointed out last time that chapter 12, in a sense, probably really starts at the last verse of chapter 11. Verse 19 of chapter 11, as we went through chapter 11, you may recall, it sort of changes subjects there. Because in verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. This is not the temple on the earth that uh, chapter 11 started with. But rather, that chapter, that's probably why they put the break there. It's sort of like bookends. You had the temple on the earth in the first verses, first two verses of chapter 11, temple of God in the last verse. But actually, verse 19 probably relates a large measure to chapter 12 onward. But in any case, we're in the book of Revelation. We've been through the most important part of the book, chapters 2 and 3. That's the part that relates to you and I. From chapter 4 on is post-rapture, but very interesting. But in a sense, you might consider it academic. From chapters 4 and 5 are an introduction to chapter 6 on, before the throne of God, the seven-sealed book, which as it opens leads to uh, Jesus preparing, the preparations for him taking over. We get verse, uh, when we get to the uh, seventh seal of the book, we have the seven trumpets. We've been through six of the seven trumpets so far. Now, every time we have a pattern of seven things, these major things, whether they seals, trumpets, or bowls of wrath being poured out, there's always six and then a break, and then the seventh. It's almost a, a it, it clearly appears that there's an overt design going on, of presenting six things and then giving you like a stretch break or catch your breath or a change of subject. When we got through the to the sixth seal, we had a chapter seven, a very different subject introduced as we dealt with the 144,000. Before chapter eight, which resumed the seventh seal, which led to the the uh, seven trumpets being blown. Six of the trumpets were taken care of, and then we had this climactic thing which is going to end up in the seven bowls shortly. But in between, again, we're in this break between the sixth and seventh element. We're going to, we're taking on a number of topics, and uh, we took chapter 11 last time. We're going to have chapter 12 that's going to introduce a handful of major players. What we have going on here isn't something that's necessarily sequential in terms of the narrative that John is witnessing before the throne of God, but it's almost like a recap, a vision that's given to John that recaps a broader picture. And that will become very obvious as we get into this here. Let's go for chapter 12, verse 1. 
And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And we'll discover in verse 5 that she brings forth a man-child. And this man-child is, is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's verse 5 down there. Identifying this woman is the first task. I think it's very easy, so I don't think this is a difficult chapter. There are other chapters that are probably much more, in my mind, much more enigmatic. This one, I think, is very straightforward as long as we stick to the Scripture. There's great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, first of all, you'll discover if you study the book of Revelation, there are four women in the book of Revelation, idiomatically speaking. There's Jezebel. We dealt with her in chapter 2, verse 20, a historical figure from the Old Testament, but used there idiomatically in the church at Thyatira. That's one of the women. There's the harlot we're going to come to, and that's going to be in chapter 17 and 18. We'll deal with that when we get there. That's clearly something else. There's this woman here that we're going to try to identify with. And then there's the bride of Christ, which will show up in chapter 19 and chapter 21 later on. There are many people that try to make the woman in chapter 12 the church, the bride of Christ. And we could spend some time on that, but I love the way Chuck Smith dismisses this problem. If the woman in chapter 12 is the virgin bride of Christ, she is in big trouble because she's pregnant. It sounds flippant, and yet that's really the fundamental issue. Who is the woman of chapter 12? The good news is that it's been interpreted for us by none other than Israel himself. That is Jacob, the one that was the father of the twelve sons. Now you may all remember the story, but let's just pop back to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. One of, the reason, one of the ways you study the book of Revelation is with a concordance. And we obviously can't take the time to track down every idiom. But what you can do very fruitfully uh, is to have a, get an exhaustive concordance, a Strong's or a Young's, whichever you prefer. And when you find an idiom of any kind, the book of Revelation... Take the concordance and find out where those things appear in, in some kind of relevant context. And you'll quickly discover that the book of Revelation is in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in the Scripture. That's not only rewarding in terms of beginning to understand what the message is telling you, but it gives you, you'll even make another discovery that I think is overshadows almost everything else. And that is you'll discover that the book of Revelation, correction, the whole Bible, the 66 books that have been penned by 40 authors over thousands of years, are an integrated message. By studying the book of Revelation with the concords and tracking these things down, it'll take you into every other book of the Bible. You'll begin to discover the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is designed as an integrated package. Once you discover that, all kinds of theological disputes start to evaporate. Once you really recognize that God says what He means and means what He says, all kinds of things start to fall into place. Now, here's an example, because everybody's puzzled about uh, this, the identity of the woman and so forth. Let's turn to chapter 37. You may recall the story of Joseph, the, you know, this young, uh, he, had his, he had these older brothers, and, and uh, they uh, were very jealous of him. And Joseph um, kept having these dreams. Uh, he, uh, he has this dream where uh, uh, there are all these uh, uh, sheaves of wheat and they all bow down to him. And then he not only has these dreams, but then he tells his brothers. And of course, his, his brothers are rather underwhelmed with these dreams. You know, they, they're not too impressed with them. And uh, we won't go through the whole Genesis 37 story. But uh, when you get to verse 9, Joseph, of course, is beloved by his father. He's given the coat of many colors. How many have heard of the coat of many colors? Okay, that's, uh, that's not bad, about 70%. Well, okay. By the way, it may not have been a coat of many colors. The word in the Hebrew is uh, debatable. Some people believe it was a seamless robe. And there are over a hundred ways that Joseph is a type or an anticipation or a model of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to, to, to explore that. It's a very, very interesting aspect. But let's move on. Jacob, because Joseph was a, a son of his old age, uh, favored him in many ways. And in verse 3, he gets this famous quote of many colors. When you get to verse 5, Joseph dreamed a dream. 
he told his brother, he said, uh, verse 7, he says, For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And of course, his brothers were not that excited about that. In verse 8, his brother said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? See, they understood the significance of the dream implied that he was destined to rule over them. And, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. They already envied him, but these dreams were just uh, uh, rubbing salt in the wound, as we might say. But then verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren. And said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come down to bow, the, uh, come, come to bow down themselves to thee on the earth? So even at this point, the father is a little annoyed by the implications here. But I want you to notice the, who interpreted the dream. It wasn't Joseph, he implied it, but, but the father. And the father recognized what the dream implied is that the stars, were, which were the brethren, were going to all worship the one. And he and his mother, the sun and the moon, idiomatically in the dream. And so we have this, the only place in the Bible that if you look, you'll search in vain for a better connection of the sun and the moon and twelve stars identifying. Yeah. And so um, now it's interesting, of course, as you know the story of Joseph, they, they sold him into slavery. And uh, he ends up, of course, becoming the prime minister of the world. And God arranges all that if for no other reason than to save Israel from the famine and the rest. Because ultimately J Jacob and uh, his brothers ultimately come back to Egypt and prosper there in those early earlier years. And of course ultimately a pharaoh who knew not Joseph grants his power and we have the, the situation set up for the exodus and the rest. But the point is it's interesting that there, the, the, these dreams are literally fulfilled. And as you study these dreams you'll, discover, there, there, you'll remember that Joseph was in prison because he was put there by the false testimony of Potiphar's wife. The point is in prison, remember there was a baker and a wine steward. And it's interesting that very early in the, and they're there for three, in three days later, one is killed, one isn't. You have the elements of the bread and the wine and the three days introduced idiomatically in the story of Joseph. And, and, and you, if you study, I, won't get, I don't want to derail our study from the Revel, uh, Revelation 12, but the point is one of the most exciting discoveries you make in the book of Genesis is that Jesus Christ is on every page. And you'll find over, Arthur W. Pink made a list, and we publish it with our commentary notes, uh, that uh, over, there's over a hundred ways that the story of Joseph uh, is a designed uh, as a foreshadowing in many ways of Jesus Christ rejected by his brethren and uh, and so forth. And uh, I'll let you chase that down. Very interesting. But the main point we want to pick up out of this is the identification of the um, uh, sun and moon and twelve stars uh, with the nation Israel. Now it's interesting at Beth Alpha in Israel, there is a famous synagogue. If you study archaeology and you go to visit Israel, um, you'll find there's a synagogue there that is unusual because it has the signs of the zodiac in the floor. And it's interesting how many times we've been there just to, uh, that even the guides presume that that's a evidence of pagan influence on the uh, synagogue at Beth Alpha. And uh, they were startled to learn that uh, maybe not so. Because one of the things you learn if you take, do a little background study here is that in the Hebrew uh, tradition, they speak of the Matzeroth. The twelve, what we call the twelve signs of the zodiac, are in uh, in Judaism, or I should say, in ancient Hebrew uh, uh, background, um, the twelve signs of the Matzeroth. And as you study uh, uh, this, it's an amazing aspect because you just see, if you look at a, a constellation in the sky, let's just take for example, you know, the Big Dipper, which is ac actually Ursa Major. Now it looks like a dipper, so we call it that, but its actual name is Ursa Major, the Big Bear. Well, there's no way you can look at the Big Dipper and see a bear. Or Cassiopeia, the woman chained in the chair. It looks like a bent W. See, the, the, it, it amazes me, having been interested in astronomy all my life. You go to these planetarium shows, and most, of the, most people have no idea where those ideas came from. They have nothing to do with an implied image in the sky. They go back to pagan traditions, but even before that... It turns out, most people don't realize, they came from Hebrew traditions before Genesis 11, that is before Babel and the, the Tower to Heaven and all of that. 
if you learn the names of the stars in that constellation it by their Hebrew names and put them in the order of brightness, the brightest one first and so forth, they are clues to a story. And you discover um, that these, uh, uh, for example, um, Virgo, uh, uh, one of the brightest stars, Spica, means a sheaf of wheat. And uh, if you start studying Virgo, here's a virgin that has a baby that has a wheat, a grain of... It turns out you discover that the constellation Virgo describes, in effect, promises that were given to the birth of a Messiah. And you go from Virgo, the virgin birth, around through the Matzeroth to what we call Leo the Lion, it's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, you'll discover that the twelve constellations that make up the Hebrew Matzeroth lay out the plan of God from a virgin birth all, th- all the way through to the victory of the uh, line of the tribe of Judah over you know, uh, the, the adversaries. Now, some scholars speculate, we don't know this for sure, we, we infer that those stories were a mnemonic by which perhaps even Enoch or earlier taught their children the plan of God. And when Genesis 11 shows up and the... Uh, Tower of Babel, and the, all this whole system gets corrupted and colored with pagan legends, and most historical research only goes back that far. They have no scriptural insight prior to that. But we do find, if you look at the scripture, that the stars were made for signs in the heavens. And you need to understand what those signs are. So, to make a long story short, those of you interested in this, we do have a little briefing package called Signs in the Heavens that tries to go into some of this. There's also a video on that subject. But the, the main point is, is that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. To someone who really understands the Old Testament, that's a suggestion that the woman here is Israel. In a very special way, I'll come back to. How else do we know who the woman is? By verse 5, she brought forth a man-child. What man-child? One who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's an express label of none other than Jesus Christ. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, which is a trialogue between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, talking to himself, uh, that, that idiom is used there. And of course it's come up in Revelation chapter 2 before, and it's going to come up again in Revelation 19.15. The, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron is an expression of none other than the Messiah of Israel. Jesus Christ. Now, who gave birth to the Messiah? Certainly not the church. The church couldn't exist until not only was the child already born, but he had to be had to die, buried, rose again, and ascended, so the Holy Spirit could come and 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 uh, indwell this strange mystery called the church. There's another name for the church I want you to be conscious of, and that's called the body of Christ. That's a term of that, and we're going to come to what may be a surprise here in a moment. By the way, for those of you that want to be more diligent here, Israel, portrayed as a woman in travail, uh, in labor pains, if you will, is in Isaiah 54:5, Isaiah 66:7, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 10, Micah 4, and Micah 5. All through the Old Testament, this idiom of Israel as a woman in travail is should be familiar to you. But I'm going to speak of Israel here as the woman in a strange sense. I'm going to suggest you visualize her as beginning with Eve. She's the woman that's the messianic line. And the first promise of Jesus Christ is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where God declaring war on Satan, he's going to show up here later in this chapter, declaring war on Satan, says he'll put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And from that verse, verse Genesis 3.15, is the first promise of the Messiah, the first promise of the Deliverer, and that gives him one of his titles, the seed of the woman. You hear that phrase all the time. It's a biological contradiction. It's a contradiction Hebrew grammar. The seed is in the man, not the woman. In the very title is a hint of the virgin birth, which of course gets confirmed in Isaiah 7, 14 and elsewhere. But we'll move on. Now this woman, thus is idiom in in this vision, if you will, of of, um, Israel. And she being with child, traveling birth, pained to be delivered. And that, of course, is all through the passages I mentioned. Now, there appeared at this point, verse 3, another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Don't guess. Look at verse 9. It tells you who he is. 
That great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's yet future, but we'll come back to that. But the point is, in this narrative, who is the red dragon? Satan. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. He's identified for us. By the way, the word red is only used twice in the book of Revelation here, and the red horseman we saw in chapter 6. And uh, that was, of course, associated with death itself. So we have introduced here an idiom for Satan. There are two passages that you may want to examine carefully in your own study, uh, having to do with the origin, career, and destiny of this strange personage called Satan or Lucifer or what have you. And that's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. It probably behooves us to take a look at those. Let's start with the passage in Isaiah 14. For several reasons, it will instruct us not only about Satan, it will also illuminate a style that the Bible frequently uses. It's a style that confuses us until we're really initiated into it. Very often the prophet will be focusing on a specific event, and yet the language goes far beyond the local immediate event and into the background that's behind the scenes. And in this particular case, we have um, Isaiah, the context here in chapter 14, he's talking about the king or leader of Babylon, a literal guy. But by the time you get to verse 12, from verses 12 through 17, the language is a little disturbing because it's obviously going way beyond the king of Babylon. In fact, it's as if the, the prophet is seeing through him into the power that's behind him. So verses 12 through 17 are recognized by Bible scholars as referring very indirectly, to, uh, only derivatively maybe, to Babylon, the king of Babylon. Rather, it addressed in verse 12 to a character by the name of Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, who didst weaken the nations? In other words, he's, he's, come, he's fallen a long way. In verse 13 and 14, we find the source of his problem. This is where sin is introduced in the universe. Not in Adam. Adam, in effect, was a derivative problem from being deceived or, or, or tempted, I should say, by Satan. Where did sin begin? In the heart of Satan. How? Through pride. Notice what happens here, verse 13. For thou hast said, speaking towards Satan, or towards Lucifer, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars here being an idiom for angels. We'll encounter that later. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So we have pride here. We're going to discover from another passage I'll show you in a moment that this being was numero uno among the created beings in the universe. Don't you, uh, you often see him, he's often portrayed as an adversary of Jesus Christ. That's nonsense. That's utter rubbish. Christ created him. He's a, powerful though he may be, a created thing. It's very important to keep that in perspective. There's another misconception, a possible misconception. See, everybody assumes that he wanted to be God. In a sense, that's true, but notice carefully what it really says. His aspiration is to be like the Most High, equal with God. Not quite the same thing. And once you understand that, you can, be in, you can begin to understand his animosity towards Adam. Because in Genesis chapter 2, you have Adam created. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, there acting as the Nahash, the shining one. The highest level of angel is a cherub. Not the Renaissance model, I'm talking about the scriptural model. The super angels. We know of only five of them. Four of them are around the throne of God, intimately associated with the maintenance of His holiness. But there's, there was one that was in charge of it all, the, the anointed cherub. We'll see that in Ezekiel 28 here in a minute. And so he blew it. 
his animosity to Adam may be all tied up with his perception that Adam was his rival. Adam was created without sin. You and I have no concept of what Adam and Eve were like in the garden. We're victims of our little Sunday school coloring books. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were clothed with light. They walked with God. They were sinless. You can't prove to me they lived in only three dimensions. We know them and the creation only post-curse. Satan's undoing of Adam, causing Adam to fall, can be viewed as, in Satan's mind, Adam's rivalry to his position. Because why? He wanted to be like God. Anyway, moving to possibility. The hostility, though, between Satan and not just mankind, but more precisely, God's plan to redeem mankind starts to unfold. We'll see that shortly. But here, then from verse 15, it starts to predict here. Isaiah says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Get this, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? Who did shake the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness? And destroyed its cities? And opened not the house of his prisoners? Strange passage. Strange passage. Now one of the questions that theologians have is when did Satan fall? There's an interesting problem because in the Genesis chapter 1 we have uh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Period. In the second verse according to the, the best Hebrew sources, Gesenius and others, where it says in our Bible, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep, should be precisely translated, but the earth became tohu vubohu, without form and void. And if you study the grammar of that sentence, plus the use of those words elsewhere, you can come to the possibility, not certainty, but a possibility, there's a gap implied between verse 1 and 2, a gap which included judgment and one that the earth became without form and void. The word there is active verb, just like uh, Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. It's an active verb. It implies something, God created the world, something happened to make it without form and void. And some scholars view that as a recreation of some previous situation. And uh, that uh, there's a speculation rampant that that was in that gap that Satan fell and the judgment of of the earth was a a result of that. The earth may have been his original domain. And that uh, uh, what we we have here is a result of his original sin. Those are just speculations. They're very colorful. They do stretch your imagination a little bit. If you're interested in that, we go into that in some depth in our Genesis commentaries. But in any case, this whole business of the origin of, of Satan is heavy stuff. Now the other passage that you need to be familiar with about Satan and such to understand the rest of what we're getting into is uh, Ezekiel 28. They're easy to remember, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. But it's again another passage where the prophet, in this case Ezekiel, is uh, speaking against the king of Tyre. He really gets into this against the king of Tyre. But by the time you get to verse 11, the language of Ezekiel against the king of Tyre is... um, Actually, prior to that, he's talking about the prince of Tyre, but now he's talking about the king of Tyre. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Maybe not clear in the King James translation here, but he's saying, You are the ultimate. You sealest up the sum. You were the ultimate. You were all there was. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's pretty good. I mean, you can't beat that. This guy is not ugly. He is incredibly attractive. But then it says, verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, at this point, we stumble, because he can't possibly be talking about the king of Tyre literally. He wasn't in Eden. That was a long time ago. We begin to realize the language here shifted to something far more uh, profound, the power behind the king of Tyre. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Then there's a description that surprises us. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy flutes was prepared in the day that thou wast created. Now, the use of these semi-precious stones as descriptors, of course, uh, suggest many things. Uh, It's generally an idiom of speaking of someone who's who's clothed with light. 
clothed with light. And uh, it goes on to say, The workmanship of thy timbrels and thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. He's musically incredible, without, without equal. This is an attractive guy. Very, be- very beautiful. Very, a lot of wisdom. Clothed with light. Verse 14 starts to unravel it. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. To be anointed is to be appointed, to be sanctified in a position. The cherub is a cherubim, one of the cherubim. That covereth, meaning he's on top of the organization. He, he, he's, a, he's in charge. The idiom in the English may not convey that quite so clearly. But what he's saying here, you were anointed to be number one. Numero uno. And I have set thee so. God put him there. Thou wast on the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. And then we have the saddest word in the Bible. Until. Until iniquity was found in thee. Up till then it was great. And the iniquity that was found was pride. We found that in Isaiah 14. That's why God hates pride. Because pride is the entry of sin into the universe. Through pride. And by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy merchandise. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to the ashes of the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they shall know thee among the people that shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. And it goes on. Heavy stuff. It's interesting. Sin grows. Sin begets sin. You can't do it a little. You just get sucked in it, uh, unbridled. It gets worse and worse and worse. It also ultimately leads to a psychosis. And what we're dealing with here is a being, second to none in the universe of created beings in terms of power, of wisdom, and what have you, that has had centuries and centuries and centuries to increase in corruption, become totally psychotic. And this malevolent, knowledgeable, powerful being is has as his goal your destruction as is his goal your destruction and that's starting that's what we're getting into here so I thought I'd get your attention with that observation and we'll move in so we have this creature verse 3 there appeared another one in heaven behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head now we're going to run into these seven heads, ten horns, and crowns, again in chapter 13 and chapter 17. So I'll defer comment on there. They'll be very familiar idioms. They already are familiar to you if you've been studying Daniel 7 and similar passages. Now, in verse 4, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. Here's one of those places where we discover that he was not alone in his rebellion. He apparently drew, either through control or enticement, whatever, one-third of the angels in his rebellion and in and, and, and his adversary. You know, it's interesting. We tend to read these things. They sound like abstract literary concepts. It's hard for us to think of them in terms of knowledgeable, sentient beings that are active and powerful and adverse to our interests. But that's what it's really all about. That's what we mean by the term spiritual warfare. And one of your main handbooks, of course, is um, Ephesians chapter 6. A couple of other things before we move on about him. One of the things we can proper... There are two big mistakes we make about Satan. Satan, the devil, Lucifer, call him what you will. The first mistake is not to take him seriously. Even people who read the Bible know it a lot, tend to think of him as an abstract concept. We don't think of him as a knowledgeable, powerful, personally directed uh, being. The second mistake is to overreact to that and to be so terrified of the reality here as to see a spook behind every tree kind of thing. 
And one of your challenges as you mature biblically is to have that in balance. To, on the one hand, realize he is real and he is actively hostile to your interests. On the other hand, to recognize he that is in you is greater than the world. That this, the victory over this strange creature and his designs has already been decided on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. In the short time we have, I can't possibly even give you a, a competent summary of the spiritual warfare we're engaged in. Um, we know that his basic technique is deceit. Uh, he's a deceiver. He deceives the whole world. And uh, uh, was blinded to him. Second Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He was a liar from the beginning. When we, he's introduced in Genesis 3, he's lying to Eve and gets her deceived. And uh, we find John 8.44. Um, in fact, that's one passage I can't, I can't track all these down, but there's certain ones that are my favorite. <laughs> so I love to get to John 8. Let's just take a quick look at John 8. We're going to head for one particular verse, but before we do, in verse 18, uh, Jesus has one of these exchanges with the Pharisees. By the time you get down to verse 18, Jesus has made the remark, I am, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. He mentions his Father. And verse 19, you and I would miss, because we're not reading it carefully. And they said unto him, Where is thy Father? That's not an inquiry. That's an aspersion. The, the undertone there. Is that is a, is the apparent cloud on his parentage? They're calling him illegitimate, and you don't realize that when you read it politely. It's when you read this carefully, you begin to realize it. He comes back on that issue. He's going to say some other things, but he comes back to answer that charge. And when he does, you realize what charge he's answering. And uh, this is, "Where's thy father? Where's thy father?" Say it how you will. Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then he goes on. And by the time you get to, oh, let's pick it up about verse 39. And they said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto him, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But ye now, now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard, not, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Notice here in verse 41, they amplify their posture here. They said to them, we are not born of fornication. See, they're, they're hammering at the fact that he's, they regard him as illegitimate. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would have loved me. But I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. And on verse 44, he explains to them their parentage. You want to talk illegitimate? I'll talk a little legitimate, he said, in effect. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The first murderer was not Abel by Cain. That was the second murder. First murder was by Satan of Adam and Eve by letting having them lose their immortality through sin. And it goes on, they say, Well, you've got a demon and so forth. And verse 49, I have not a demon, I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. I seek not my own glory, but there is one that seeketh and judges. Verily I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. In verse 52, the Jews said unto him, Now we know that thou hast a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? And this is where it gets to be fun here. Verse 51, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom you say he is your God. Ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I should be a liar like you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? I love verse 58. Most people don't understand it. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now again, see, you and I read that, we don't get it. 
That's an allusion to Exodus 4. That's an allusion to Moses. That's an allusion to the voice of the burning bush. He is saying, I am. Who is that going to send me? Moses asked. I am sent you. Right? The Ichyach Asher The I am that I am. Now, every time you and I run the risk of missing a point, the Pharisees come to our rescue. They underline it for us so we don't miss it. See, in verse 59, they took up stones to cast at him. Why? Because he claimed to be the voice of the burning bush. He's, he's blaspheming in their mind. I want you to notice his tact, his diploma, Jesus' diplomacy with those guys. <laughs> I'll explain fornication to you guys. We talk about the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, a title of the Messiah. We overlook the fact there's also the seed of the serpent involved. And the clash between those two comes to a climax in the book of Revelation. What we're going to see, what we see unfolding here, not just from chapter 12 on, but the whole 6 through 19 package, is the opening up the, the indivisibility, this climactic clash between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Talking about spiritual warfare, though, if you want some more insight into this, I encourage you to study carefully Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 is really an introduction to the climactic vision of Daniel 11 and 12. But in Daniel chapter 10, a strange thing happens. Daniel's in fasting and prayer for three weeks. At the end of those three weeks, messenger comes. And the messenger explains to Daniel, I, I was sent to you when you first started fasting and praying three weeks ago. But I was held up for three weeks, 21 days. Because I had to fight the, uh, the uh, prince of Persia. Now he's not talking about the guy Darius who's running Persia at the time. No, no, no. He's talking about the power behind the throne. And, I, and he said, I couldn't get through until Michael came to help me. Michael's always a military leader on behalf of Israel, every time you see him in the scripture. Gabriel is always on a messianic announcement mission. Always. They have very clear job descriptions if you study all the places they appear. But in any case, what's strange, then he says, I'm going to give you a big vision here at 11 and 12, in effect. But when I'm through with you, I've got to go back and fight him some more. And after I'm through with him, i got the prince of Greece. Everybody knows after Persia came Greece. Yeah, but two centuries later? See, it's a different time domain there. Totally different time domain. And yet, that Daniel 10, if you study carefully, gives a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. That we think of governments, Russia, United States, whatever. What the scripture portrays is unseen to us. Is spiritual warfare going on? Heavy-duty stuff. And uh, there's a number of passages. I encourage you to take that on as a study. We've got notes and things on that sort of thing. But I want to underscore, so you don't get spooked by some of this stuff, the ultimate victory is assured, 1 John 4, 4. Romans 8, the last half, last part of that chapter, makes it very, very clear. Satan's already defeated. Already, It's already cast in concrete, if I can use that expression. And there's lots of verses. We'll put those in the notes for you. Let's move on. Verse 4. Uh, we've got verse 4. Uh, this, one other thing, verse 4. A tail uh, drew a third part of the stars and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. Why? To devour her child as soon as it was born. Why? Because that was the key by which Adam and his descendants had an opportunity to be redeemed. If he could thwart that plan of God, he wins some way. Okay. What's interesting is you can study, and by the way, I might mention the term star for is an idiom in the Old Testament for angels. You find it lots of places. We, met, we, we encountered it in the previous verse. We saw it also in Daniel 8, verse 10, and there's other places. But let's not spend time on that. It's interesting. You can study the whole Old Testament in terms of the scenario of Satan trying to thwart the plan of God. In Genesis chapter 3, God announced that God, the mankind, uh, Adam and his descendants, will be redeemed by the seed of the woman. Next chapter, there are two sons, Cain and Abel. You see, and he, Cain kills Abel. You start right there. By the time you get to Genesis 6, you discover that these stars, these angels, have corrupted the genealogy of mankind. Strange, spooky stuff to really understand what really happened in Genesis 6. The most interesting thing about the flood of Noah to me isn't the flood. It's the circumstances that led to it in Genesis 6. And I encourage you to do a study of that. And you'll discover that Benai Elohim the, uh, entered into the daughters of men had unnatural offspring. And these strange events are recorded in the myths and legends of Greece, among other places. The demigods. 
half man, half God kind of thing. Strange, strange stuff. Noah was among the few that did not have a corrupted genealogy, which is why God redeemed him, wiped, raced the blackboard, started over. The whole issue of the flood, the study of the flood of Noah. You move along, you get into Pharaoh and Egypt and so forth, you discover the Jewish children are being killed by Pharaoh. Why? To wipe out Israel. You look through the history of this nation Israel from the earliest passage of Genesis to the present day. And there's no group of people on the earth that have had a more focused attack on wiping out the whole line. All, all of Israel. And you find that, of course, uh, whether it's uh, Pharaoh and the killing of the children, of course, Moses spared by being the, uh, the little bulrush th- basket and all that. Whether you find Saul chasing David all through uh, Samuel and Kings and so forth. As God reveals his plan, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the royal line is going to be Judah of the twelve tribes. As, you, as the prophecies unfold, it allows Satan to focus his attack. And uh, it's interesting to watch that. Um, Joram, uh, plot against his brothers in Second Chronicles 21. Athaliah, here's a case where there's one boy left. All the royal line's been wiped out. There's one boy left, yet he's miraculously spirited away and taken care of. And you discover that the sin that takes uh, over uh, the royal line gets so bad that when you get to Jeconiah and the royal line under Saul, after Solomon, God is so angry at Jeconiah, he pronounces a blood curse on the line of Jeconiah. In Jeremiah 22, you find it mentioned that, uh, that not, no, no, descendant of Je- no descendant of Jeconiah will prosper. A blood curse on the royal line. And I love that passage. I always visualize at that time there was celebration in the councils of Satan. Boy, we got him this time. Because God himself has indicated Messiah has to come from the royal line, legal, legal line to the throne of David, and yet he's not pronounced a blood curse on the royal line. We got him now. And I always visualize God turning to the angels saying, watch this one. And of course you all know the story. When you get to the New Testament, you discover that uh, Matthew, being a Jew, takes the genealogy from Abraham down through David, down through Solomon, down through the royal line to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. But not carrying the blood curse because he's not a blood father. Luke, being a physician, has a different viewpoint. He's interested not in the fact that he's the Messiah, the son of David. He's interested in the fact that he's man, son of man. He takes his genealogy from Adam down to Abraham. From Abraham to David, they're the same. But at David, Luke takes a strange turn. Instead of going through the first son, the legal son, Solomon, he goes through the second son under Bathsheba, Nathan, and down through that line and comes to Mary. We discover the exceptions in the Torah which allowed a woman marrying within the tribe to inherit and all of that that uh, many people don't realize that the daughters of Zelophehad are a key to the claims of Jesus Christ. You discover every detail in the Torah is there and links to Jesus Christ. But in any case, we find the virgin birth getting being the end run on that whole problem. Was that an afterthought? No. Jesus, uh, God reveals it in his mind in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, not the man, the woman, will become the deliverer. So we discover every detail, every genealogy, painting of Jesus Christ. But again, always a response to this, this uh, drama where Satan is trying to, to undo God's plan. Um, Haman and Esther, where Haman tries to wipe out the Jews in Persia. And of course God intervenes in a, in a marvelous way. And uh, the babes in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Again, here's Herod acting in the, uh, as Satan's emissary, in effect, trying to wipe out the, the Messianic line. The temptations of Jesus Christ in uh, Luke 4, where Satan tries to tempt him from thwarting the mission. And uh, obviously unsuccessful. Of course, Revelation 13 is going to be the final effort, the big one. You can study the whole pattern of anti-Semitism. Now, all prejudice, racial prejudice is bad, but there's something uniquely satanic about the, the attempts, the repeated attempts throughout history to exterminate the, the Jews. And in fact, it's occurring again. We have this whole foolish peace process. The pro, the, based on a false premise, the problem in the Middle East is not the size of Israel, it's the existence of Israel. Islam has committed itself openly, vehemently, for generations, and it's reconfirmed today, to wipe out Israel. They won't be satisfied until Israel is gone. Now you ask yourself, why? 
You'd think that up to the cross that made sense. But the cross is there. Jesus died. I mean, that's all been settled. Why is Satan still messing around? Why is he still so hostile against the Jews? There's probably many reasons, but one of the most provocative ones is there is a precondition to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Hosea 5.15 and other passages, and we'll explore this later in the book of Revelation, but we'll discover that one of the conditions... Can we squeeze it in? Yeah, let's maybe we can. Turn to Hosea chapter 5. Verse 15 of chapter 5, God says, I will go and return to my place. Now, in order to return to your place, you must have left it. Right? God's saying, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. The word offense is singular and specific. There's a specific sin that they, that is Israel, has to acknowledge. I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. And then is the prayer they're going to pray. And when they pray it on the third... In other words, what leads up to is that Israel, the believing remnant, will finally, after the tribulation, come to the recognition that indeed Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And they will ask forgiveness in a national corporate sense for that sin and petition him to save them from the onslaught that we call Armageddon that's surrounding them. And third day after they do that, they will be the, the Messiah will come. In Isaiah 63, we find a description of the second coming where Jesus is covered with bloodstains of his enemies because he's fighting for them, not in Jerusalem, in Basra and Petra where they have fled. So there's a whole uh, possibility. So this is obviously not a, a widely held view, but it's an interesting defendable view uh, that we'll explore a little later. In any case, the woman in verse 5 brought forth a man-child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And Now that's in spite of all of Satan's efforts, right? Then have, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And most of us read that and say, no problem, that's what? The ascension, right? It may be much more than that, interestingly enough. The next verse says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now you may recognize this interval of time as one of the many places that it speaks of the half week of the Daniel 70 weeks. Daniel, the most documented passage in the Bible, a portion of time in the Bible, is the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period that's divided into two halves, divided by the abomination of desolation. The last half of that seven-year period, the last three and a half years, is designated by none other than Jesus Christ as the Great Tribulation. He happens to be quoting Daniel 12.1 when he makes that remark in Matthew 24. But the point is... The tribulation isn't seven years, it's three and a half. It's the great tribulation specifically is the last half. Now, idiomatically, we often speak of the seven-year tribulation. What we really mean is the 70th week of Daniel. But in any case, it's interesting that we have the man-child caught up to God in his throne. And in the next verse, because the focus of the passage, of course, is the woman. All this is incidental to the theme of the woman. The woman is then suddenly in the great tribulation. I was startled to discover many, many years ago the writings of G.H. Pember. G.H. Pember's best known, I think, for his writings having to do with the book of Genesis, the gap theory, some of that stuff. But it's interesting, when he writes about Revelation, his presumption about verse 5 is that the, the, the man-child caught up to God in his throne is the rapture of the church. It's the bringing up the body of Christ. That startled me. It fits. But it's amazing to me how few commentators pick up on that 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 phrase may simultaneously refer to the ascension, yes, but also the body of Christ. Bear in mind, we're looking at Israel here. It's like a chess clock. One clock's running. When, the, when it stops, the other one starts. That kind of a thing. And, and from our studies of the day, seventh week of Daniel, I think you're following me. If you haven't studied the seventh week of prophecy of Daniel, if you're going to be serious about Bible prophecy, I encourage you to start by mastering the last four verses of Daniel 9 to really understand the structure. But let's just keep moving here now. I might mention there is an implied gap or interval then between verses 5 and 6 in any case, okay? It may surprise you to learn that that interval shows up elsewhere in the Scripture. There are other places where there's this and this that are side by side in the Scripture, but if you look carefully, there's an implied gap between, an interval between the two. Daniel 70 weeks being an example. The interval between the 69 weeks and the 70th week has an interval. The interval there containing 
this strange mystery called the church. You might be fascinated to know how many such passages are in in the Bible. There are 24 of them. 24 of them. I think that's an interesting number, especially if it indeed does allude to the church. But let's move on. Verse 7. Well, we should probably talk this, this whole great tribulation thing. One of the things to understand about there's so much talked about the great tribulation, we'll be talking more about it as the book unfolds. But I want you to remember its Old Testament label. Yes, it's called the Great Tribulation because Jesus Christ so labeled it in Revelation in Matthew 24, quoting in effect Daniel 12 verse 1. But there's another label that echoes in the Old Testament from Jeremiah 30. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And what that does for it, I'm not implying it's limited to Israel. It's worldwide. But the focus of it is Israel. We need to remember that. That's, a, that's very, very crucial. Now, Israel at that time will be the mechanism God is using to communicate to the whole world. And there's going to be revival on the planet Earth that will vastly exceed anything that's happened in the last 2,000 years. A lot of people don't study the Patch care realize that. They sort of see that maybe as an afterthought. They think the church has done a great job. No, 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 no. The fruit bearing that's implied in Matthew 13 and the seven kingdom parables goes 160, 40. It gets worse, not better. And the, the history of the church we covered in great detail when we studied uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The good news is the Holy Spirit always does bear fruit, and there is fruit. But the real big event will be done through the 144,000, the two witnesses, and what have you, that Israel is going to, uh, the, re- the believing remnant in Israel, are going to, to harvest a uh, fruit for God that's unparalleled in history. Now it's going to involve martyrdom. Some pretty tough times, but in God's perspective, it's going to be a very exciting, fruitful time. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought his angels. Major war in heaven. A war in heaven? Think about that. You think, we got wars. A war in heaven. Strange place. Bear in mind, in Revelation, it's not only the creation that's redeemed. In Isaiah and Revelation, we find the interesting phrase, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. There's a lot going on here. In any case, Michael, here again, he's the, he's the, 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 uh, the military leader, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. Now, Michael's one of the chief princes we find in Daniel 10. He's Daniel's special prince in Daniel 10.21. He's a warrior for Israel in Daniel 12. And he fights in Jude 9 over the body of Moses. We talked about that before. And uh, in Zechariah 14 and Numbers 21, we have a strange allusion to the wars of the Lord. There's something going past. And we can speculate on that when we have time, but we'll move on. And the devil and his angels uh, fought him and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. In Luke 10, John 16, John 12, we find him cast out of heaven. I believe that's yet future. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You and I can't imagine him being confined to the earth. Man, could he be up to mischief then. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. And for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The accuser is one title. The deceiver is another. Satan and devil are just uh, adjectives in effect. His original name apparently was Lucifer. Angel of light. Verse 11, And they overcame them, excuse me, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. So again we have the price of martyrdom echoing here. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Tough time on the earth. Glad we're not going to be here. Third woe, if you will. It echoes the third woe, if you will, back there. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Out of just animosity? Possibly. Or maybe it deals with this prerequisite uh, condition conjecture I just mentioned to you. And, of course, the focus is on Israel, as Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, and other passages. And, of course, the woman flees into the wilderness. Daniel, Daniel 11, verse 41, tells us that, that Edom, Moab, and Ammon escaped the rule of the Antichrist, presumably to give them a place to flee to. And it's interesting that the re- recent treaty with Jordan, between Jordan and Israel, may be setting the stage for that. 
I think it's far, I think the Treaty with Jordan is vastly more interesting than the charade going on about the so-called peace process, which the uh, ambassador of NATO and the assistant secretary of defense for NATO both uh, believe guarantees a preemptive nuclear strike in the Middle East forthcoming. Just a question of time. The woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. There's another expression for the three and a half years. Time, times, the dividing of time. Time is singular. Times is a dual, not a plural, a dual here. And half a time. It's interesting that um, um, we have here again eagle's wings. You may be surprised to learn that from the flight from Egypt... In the Exodus was called uh, on eagle's wings. In Exodus 19, verse 4, they're being handled through the wilderness. The idiom is used in Deuteronomy 32 as uh, on the wings of eagles. And, of course, the return from Babylon, Isaiah 40, verse 31. The term eagle's wings is used in each of those cases. But anyways, verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a, as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Strange idiom. Some people believe that the flood, the word is diaspora. And yet uh, that may mix metaphors here because this is post-trib, if you will, or in the tribulation. But verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he might be doing this just out of animosity, but one can construct, uh, thanks to the efforts of uh, Dr. Frachtenbaum and other scholars, have, have highlighted the fact that uh, there may be a prerequisite condition implied in the Old Testament that before Jesus comes for them, they have to ask him to. And that would be very consistent. Before Jesus Christ can enter your life, you have to ask him to. God will not violate your sovereignty. And uh, uh, he has a destiny for you that is available for the asking. It's free. In fact, you can't add to it. That's blasphemy. But it's interesting. God's uh, method is that he will not violate your sovereignty. You need to receive him. Ask him. He's, he's given you a destiny. It's available for the asking. And likewise with Israel. He'll come back when they, in a corporate sense, for them, when they ask him to. He comes back twice, once for his church and once for Israel. And that's what Revelation is focusing on. You'll notice from chapter 6 through 19, the Jewishness all through it. That the very fact that there is Israel, the fact that these distinctions are there, are significant. Because uh, the scripture makes it very clear that, that in the church period, there are three people. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. In the first 2,000 years of human history, there were all Gentiles. One group. From, that's up to Abraham. From Abraham to Christ, there are two groups. Jews and Gentiles. From Christ to the present day, there are three, Jewish, Gentiles, and church. From the rapture on, there are two. Well, let me be more precise. In the millennium, there are two, Jews and Gentiles. Where's the church? In heaven, not on the earth. Interesting. So, we encourage you uh, to study the Trinity. We're also uh, finishing up a briefing package on Israel and the church and the tribulation as a special study for those that would want to get into it. And let's... uh, it was kind of a photo finish, but we made it. <laughs> the critical identity, everything else falls into place if you understand who the woman is. That's the key dilemma in, in uh, Revelation chapter 12. In this case, I don't think there's any uh, you know, room for really competent disagreement. A lot of other places there's viewpoints and things, but here I think we're pretty straightforward. Chapter 13, next time, wild stuff. We're going to learn about the Antichrist, both of them. One of the insights from Revelation 13 that highlights there's two guys, not one. The first and second beast of Revelation 13, two distinct guys. One called, each called beasts initially, but uh, uh, the second one called the false prophet from this passage onwards. But you'll get the identities there. Interesting guys. Many, many scholars, not all, many scholars believe they're both alive today. And I'll show you why you don't need to waste any time guessing as to who they are. Next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we always stagger as we realize the extremes you have gone to that we might live. That you have chosen by your own efforts to provide a, 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 a redemption from this fallen state we find ourselves as descendants from our father Adam. 
And Father, we don't understand why we are such a pawn in this cosmic struggle, and yet, Father, we're grateful that you have chosen us before we have chosen you, that you have provided a Redeemer, that you have announced and nourished your word through the centuries of struggle so that he might send us a love letter, a letter written in blood on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Father, for this redemption. We thank you, Father, for revealing it to us that we might begin to comprehend what's involved in what you've done for us. So, Father, we just received that. We thank you, Father, for what you have done. We acknowledge before you, Father, that by our own merit, our own worth, we are worse than zero. That we can contribute nothing to that destiny which you have for us. And yet you've provided all of it for the asking. So, Father, we just do ask you to receive us as your children. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit you would illuminate these things in your word that we might more fully appreciate and appropriate these things to our own lives. And Father, as we come before your throne this evening, we also come before you, Father, on behalf of your people Israel. We pray, Father, that you would speed the days when your Spirit would remove the blindness, the corporate blindness, reveal to them the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. We pray, Father, too, that you would illuminate to us the discernments we need to discern between the church and Israel, between their respective origins, their respective missions, and their respective destinies. We pray, Father, that you would help us to more fully understand the word that you've placed in our laps, that through this understanding we might grow in grace the knowledge of the seed of the woman who has given himself for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us in the days ahead to continue to pray for your people Israel, to pray for our own immediate horizons, that your priorities would prevail over our own, that you would illuminate to us those things you would have of us in our lives, moment by moment and day by day. That all that we do and all that we are might glorify your name, not by power nor by might, but by your spirit. For we commit ourselves before you indeed in the name of Yeshua, Hamashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.